Hello, and welcome to the All Things Hadoop podcast. I'm your host, Joe Stein. This is episode nine, a talk with Paco Nathan. And now on to the show. Hello, I'd like to welcome to the podcast Paco Nathan, Chief Scientist of Mesophere. Welcome, Paco. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Great. Uh, so, Paco, how did you originally get into Hadoop? Uh, I was working at a, a startup called Headcase. Actually, it was Headcase Humanifacturing. And uh, we were working in natural language processing, uh, actually scraping a lot of text out of uh, social networks, like, you know, off of Facebook walls, etc. This was in 2007. And, uh, and we were doing text analytics there. It, it was kind of early for text analytics for social media. Um, not a lot of people were buying the idea. Um, but we ended up with these huge workloads uh, where, you know, we had to parse and, and tag, etc. Um, so we had built all of this out in AWS. Um, we'd been one of the earliest firms to go 100% in the cloud. And uh, we were having troubles coordinating all of our Java workflows, like for Open NLP. So uh, in 2007, we started using Hadoop to try to coordinate everything, and it was it was a lot more stable. Um, but um, the punchline was that you know we, as a startup, we didn't go very far with that. Um, our engineering team got picked up by an ad network called Ad Knowledge, which is was one of the big second tier ad networks, and. Uh, and they brought us in uh, specifically for Hadoop. Um, they had a Natiza application, which was responsible for like 80% of their revenue. And it was failing all over the place. And they'd spent $3 million on it. So our team came in and we had like five weeks to reverse engineer some code that nobody would looked at for a long time. And the person who'd written it was long gone. It uh, wasn't even in source code control. It was like 1,500 lines of SQL. But it was like, you know, the, the cash cow for the company. Um, so we rewrote it in Hadoop and ran it on EC2. And not long after that, my friends at Amazon called up and said, hey, you're the, the biggest Hadoop deployment on EC2. Um, let's talk. Um, so that was, that was a lot of fun. We, we became a, a case study for Elastic MapReduce and worked really closely with Amazon. Um, actually, Tom White, the author of the O'Reilly book about Hadoop, he was uh, one of the contractors on the team. Um, and at the end of the day, we replaced $3 million in CapEx for failing hardware with about $400 a day Amazon cost. And then, you know, a few months later, cut that in half. Very cool. Very cool. So tell us a little bit about Mesos. Um, yeah, the project, the Mesos project is, it's been going on for a while. Uh, Twitter and Airbnb have some large deployments. Uh, came out of Ben Hinman's um, PhD dissertation at Berkeley. And... The idea is uh, using process containers, using C groups. Uh, some of the features that are in uh, Linux, Unix kernels, uh, using those for managing cluster resources. Um, and so, if if you think of uh, say the Linux kernel, but then think about the GNU Linux apps that are around the kernel, um, things like cron and ps and um, you know ls, all the stuff you'd use in Linux all the time, then the analogy would be Mesos is the kernel and Mesosphere is working with other companies to build out the apps around it. So um, Kronos is a distributed cron. It was originally done at um, Airbnb uh, by Flo Libert and uh, Flo is actually CEO of Mesosphere. So, you know, we're building out that and other kinds of, of support for frameworks along those lines um, and also helping to commercialize the project. 
can you maybe tell us a little about the difference between yarn and Mesos? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, yarn is getting a lot of publicity lately, and obviously a lot of support behind it. Um, Hortonworks, Clutter, etc. And and there's some very exciting work there in terms of um, how does Hadoop evolve into a variety of different topologies and different types of applications. Um, and you know, I definitely like that a lot. Um, Mesos is much lower in the stack. Mesos is really part of the operating system. So it's essentially um, OS support for distributed systems, OS support for Linux clusters. Um, Yarn is higher up in the stack. It's, it really is based off of JVM, and it's more suited towards supporting Hadoop and that ecosystem, if you will. Um, whereas with Mesos, you could be supporting multiple versions of Hadoop. Um, and in fact, that's, that's part of the use cases, like at Twitter and Airbnb. They don't have to run one headed cluster. Um, they can run several different versions, depending on what apps they need to run or what they're trying to evaluate. But on the same resources, they can also be running, um, you know, Ruby on Rails and Python and and uh, you know Nginx and, and other things. Um, I don't think that Yarn is really going to have a good answer when it comes to something like Anaconda or Blaze or a lot of the work more in the Python world um, or Heroku or, or other kinds of workloads that need to be clustered. Um, and the other, the other thing about it is that Mesos is much more, it's, it's more like Google Borg in terms of what Google is doing, has been doing for many years, um, to manage their clusters and get really high ROI, um, without using virtualization. Um, whereas Yarn is, like I say, it's, it's part of Hadoop, it's, it's in JVM, much further up the stack. So what's the future of Mesos? Um, so Mesos is, is a really interesting argument in terms of, um, you know, Google has had Borg for, what, several years, well, I guess seven years or so, uh, and they don't really talk about it much. There's a YouTube video and a paper or two, um, and there's a new project apparently called Omega. But, um, you know, apparently this is some of the secret sauce at Google for how they get really high ROI on large data centers. Um, for machine learning apps, etc. So the future of Mesos, what I see is that companies are wanting to embrace that approach as opposed to having clusters that are run on virtual machines. Um, VMs tend to uh, chew up a lot of your I.O., your, your switch fabric. Um, and Mesos, on the other hand, tends to give you a lot of flexibility for reshaping your cluster and what kind of resources are being exposed depending on what sort of workloads are coming through. So on the one hand, it gives companies a lot more flexibility. Uh, I think Twitter and Airbnb have both just published case studies about why they're using Mesos. Um, part of it is because they can make their data centers much more elastic, um, you know, even more so than what they would have if they were in the cloud. Um, part of it is because they can get better utilization rates, kind of smooth out their utilization curves across workloads by having multi-tenancy. Um, part of it also is, uh, frankly, you know, there's a lot of great talent from Google, and uh, I think uh, Twitter and others would like to capture some of that talent. And uh, you know, here you go, you can provide uh, a computing environment, which is much more like what some of these folks might be familiar with on the inside. Um, but you can provide it based on an open source stack. So um, there's a lot of you know staffing and, and operations arguments. But at the end of the day, by reducing a lot of latency, 
you know, um, you're going to have new kinds of use cases enabled. Um, what I mean there is that if I'm running a large Hadoop cluster and building my data products, doing my batch jobs, batch windows, you know, if, if I create some anti-fraud classifier, uh, it might be huge and it might be really mission critical, but it probably needs to be served off of uh, more real-time kind of web services, et cetera, in a different cluster. And in, in a large operation, I could have three or five or ten of these clusters running. So you end up paying a kind of wire tax to ship data products from one cluster to another. If you can move your batch in real time together on the same actual physical equipment and cut down a lot of overhead of virtualization, then you can actually enable new kinds of services and in some cases new kinds of algorithms to um, blend these, couple of these services much more tightly. That's what Twitter and Airbnb are making the case that um, Mesos is actually enabling them to provide new kinds of services. Yeah, it sounds like uh, virtualized move your process to your data in a, in a whole new type of way. It's very interesting. Yep. Great. So let's talk a little bit more about the Hadoop stack. Can you uh, talk a little bit about cascading, what it's about, um, and, and such? Certainly, yeah. Uh, so cascading is an abstraction layer. Um, it, Chris Wenzel is the author, and he was at Thomson, now Thomson Reuters, uh, and back in about 2005, he was looking at the Nudge project. Um, it's an open source web crawler, indexer, etc. Um, because he, he was working on the FindLaw project, which was uh, a legal uh, custom search engine. And you know, his, his takeaway from looking at early Hadoop, and, and this is before Hadoop even really had a name, um, but looking at Lucene, Nudge, Hadoop, his takeaway was it was going to be pretty hard in an enterprise context to get developers who would be expert at working directly in MapReduce API, um, who could also be doing enterprise, very large, complex apps. So he wanted to build an abstraction layer. And the interesting thing is, you know, I mean, Hive and Pig, um, I've used, my teams have used, they definitely have a lot of, um, a lot of visibility. Actually, Cascading came out in the public first. Uh, it came out in late 2007, and it's had going on six years of enterprise deployments. Um, when you look at Amazon, like Elastic MapReduce, um, the largest use case for EMR is Climate Corp. And 90% of their code is, is, is based on, on uh, Cascalog, Cascading Enclosure. So you know, we see these really huge enterprise use cases, uh, like at Nokia, Telefonica, and others, um, based on Cascading. And at the end of the day, what it's about is taking a cue from uh, functional programming languages and using some of more functional aspects inside of Java uh, for building really large-scale data pipelines. Okay. How does cascading compare to other query and transformation tools in the community? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, the enterprise deployments, I, I think that uh, finance definitely, but also healthcare, transportation, the more conservative kind of, of verticals were the first ones to really embrace cascading, um, largely because it, it fits their profile. They're very risk-aversive firms. They want to run batch workflows that are very deterministic, um, that are relatively easy to troubleshoot. So um, cascading is always kind of aired in that direction, trying to satisfy the, the enterprise use cases. Um, so case in point, cascading really is inside of the language. It's, it's in Java. 
Um, so the compiler has full view to do you know work with troubleshooting and to do optimizations and exception handling things like that. Um, in contrast, Hive and, and Pig, um, Pig is a DML. It's the it's basically being translated. The compiler is underneath it. There are uh, user-defined functions, UDFs, like written in Python or Java or whatever. Um, so the compiler doesn't really have visibility to the whole space. And where, well, something like uh, Hive or Pig, they're very, um, they're very good for teams that are just learning and uh, just want to get into the data right away and slice and dice it, get some insights. I definitely use those before for that. Um, cascading is more for where you want to build an app that you're going to be running 24-7 and it's mission critical. And when it runs, you can tell where it's running. Um, one of the problems with Hive and, and Pig both is they use non-deterministic planners. So um, it's a little bit hard to understand where they're executing and the kinds of queries that they'll be running actually changes as the shape of the data changes. Um, so I, I use the um, analogy um, borrowing from Steve Yegi at Google. Um, he had the Magic Mystery Bus article. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, he used um, he used the analogy of conservatism versus liberalism uh, for programming environments. And so to illustrate that, like say Pinterest is using I don't know PHP or Ruby or something. Uh, if if they push out a feature and they have a bug introduced. It's really no big deal because it, they need to have the flexibility, the innovation. Uh, they need to see what gets traction with customers. And so there may be a bug or two introduced here and there, but they can push another build really quick and fix that. And I was at a company called Enview, which you know was the case study for Lean Startup, and they do exactly that, you know, 70 builds a day. Um, on the other hand, you don't really want your airline or your hospital to be doing that with mission-critical code. Um, so that's what Steve Yegi talks about is sort of like a liberalism versus conservatism kind of spectrum. Um, you know, the hospital is going to be using a much more lockdown environment compared with, say, Pinterest. Uh, and so Hive and Pig really are more early adopter tools where they've come out of, um, whereas cascading was more towards how do you satisfy what the airline needs, what the hospital needs, etc. Um, at the end of the day, uh, Cascading is more a matter of middleware, and it, the idea is that you rarely ever use Hadoop alone. You almost always use Hadoop with some other kind of frameworks, like maybe you're pulling data out of Cassandra or HBase. Maybe you're pushing data into uh, Mongo or uh, Memcached, something like that. Um, so cascading is all about the integration of, uh, of the different parts and compiling your whole app down into one jar file. Um, so it, it ends up being really middleware. Um, when we look at the deployments lately, uh, most of the new deployments are either in Cascalog or Scalding. Um, Cascalog is cascading in Clojure, and Scalding is cascading in Scala. And both of those came out of Twitter, but a number of other companies have been involved. They're very much DSLs, uh, domain-specific languages for functional programming languages. Um, we find that functional programming is excellent for big data. There's a number of properties that make it a very good fit. Um, and we've seen these companies invest a lot of money and time in building out these open source projects based on cascading as a foundation, but then in turn go and build their revenue apps 
in Cascalog and Scalding. So, for instance, half of Twitter's compute is running on Cascading. It's running on Scalding, their revenue apps. So, Paco, do you see uh, different patterns that are in the enterprise with Scalding and Cascalog? Yeah, we, um, we've actually had some of the, the customer base, the user base, um, bring up the notion of a design pattern in general for what we see with these kind of big data apps in enterprise. Um, and, and it fits really well with what Cascading and Scalding Cascalog are attempting to, to do. Um, the idea is that if you're, if you're in enterprise running a big batch workflow, typically you've got um, like five parts. You, number one, you've got a part that um, takes a number of data sources, probably some structured and unstructured data. Number two, there's some kind of ETL. And number three, there's some kind of data preparation, some custom business logic cleaning up the data. Number four, there's usually some kind of analytics or predictive modeling to enrich the data. And then number five, there's integration with the uh, end use cases, line of business apps that consume the data products. So. Um, what's interesting with cascading is that there are open source portions to address each of those five points. Um, there's tight integrations, formal integrations with, like I say, Cassandra, HBase, et cetera, for uh, consuming data from different sources. There's a lingual project, uh, sorry, a project called Lingual um, done in conjunction with the people who did Mondrian. Um, they had like 7,000 unit tests of DB2 and SQL Server, Teradata, et cetera. Um, so basically taking their ANSI SQL parser and optimizer, putting it on top of cascading. Um, in enterprise, we usually see uh, Teradata having sort of the lion's share of the ETL that's being done. But an interesting thing is that ETL is for data that's typically never indexed or never normalized. It's just uh, SQL acting as a, a kind of business logic. So um, with the Lingual project, you can cut and paste Teradata queries, et cetera, and generate cascading calls and generate you know, draw file. Um, the third part where there's custom business logic, that's what cascading was originally used for, data preparation. And the fourth part, the predictive modeling, um, there's been a recent effort to take uh, PMML, which you can, when you, if you're training models in R or SAS or SPSS or something, uh, almost all these analytics frameworks support exporting a model as PMML. And once you've got the PMML model, it encapsulates your model. Um, cascading can read that and generate it into cascading calls. And then there's also integration for point number five of where the data is going to end up for end use cases. So what this means is that in an enterprise, while you may have five different departments working on an app, each having their own respective piece, you can take the work product from each department, put it together into one app, and the compiler sees this all as one connected graph. The compiler can optimize it, um, do exception handling, et cetera, all across it. Um, so it's a way of integrating teams. And I think it's fun because it, it, it really illustrates the middleware part of it. Um, some of this was actually suggested out of a project at PayPal. Awesome. So what are some suggestions you have for folks looking to get involved in open source and big data projects? Um, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in what's going on with Spark, uh, the whole Berkeley stack that's evolving. Uh, Spark is based on Mesos, 
And, uh, you know, and while there is a lot of evolution going on in Hadoop, uh, Giraffe, and, and other projects that I, I, HBase, I think, has really come a long ways. Um, I think there's great things on the Hadoop side. I think there's also very interesting things going on in the Spark side. Um, and I would recommend people to, you know, jump into either of those. Um, I, I see a lot of awesome work in academia, particularly in algorithm development that's more based in MPI. And I think that that has some natural fits to move more towards the Spark side of the world. Um, a lot of work coming out of astrophysics and um, bioinformatics that is just years ahead of what we see in e-commerce, um, largely because the data rates in those domains are much higher than what we see in e-commerce. But you know, those projects have been very academic. So you know, I would encourage people to brush up on their linear algebra and maybe some computational topology and uh, jump right in. How do you see data science unfolding over the next few years? Uh, what does the future look like for data science and data scientists? Oh, excellent. Um, you know, it, it's great to have been working in e-commerce, particularly in advertising for a number of years. Um, e-commerce really got the ball rolling. Um, there were the, the essential elements of having machine data at scale, horizontal scale out, algorithmic modeling. Um, you know, these really got data science going, in my opinion, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and also, there's been a real excellent evolution of multidisciplinary teams. Um, I'm, I'm an O'Reilly author, and, and the O'Reilly editors really have emphasized that, that when you look at LinkedIn and, and others, the multidisciplinary aspect of the teams is what knocked down the hard problems. Um, also, a lot of work, excellent work in visualization. Uh, leading to actionable insights. So I think we've got a foundation there, but it, it largely came out of e-commerce. Um, when I'm going around and talking to people about use cases for for cascading, mesos, etc., um, a lot of this is more real-world problems. Um, you know, they I, I use the analogy that Caterpillar, when they build out their data science effort, it won't be because they're building a social network. It would be because they have a multi-billion-dollar supply chain. They're dealing with very real-world data. Um, they're building drone tractors, basically, or become drones, and they use huge amounts of satellite telemetry, etc. So you know you're going to see companies like Caterpillar become a data company, or see companies like Tesla essentially become data companies. And I think that the the Internet of Things part of the story. Um, it necessarily leads to orders of magnitude more data. Um, when you, like for instance, if you look at the um, acoustic sensors on jet turbines, um, right now commercial flights are generating 12 exabytes of data per day just to monitor jet aircraft. And you know how how can you store that? I mean, that's like thousands of Facebooks put together. Um, so there's going to be a lot of work required on the data engineering for much higher data rates, but also a lot of work in terms of the math and the algorithms to handle you know, what, is, what would be unimaginable in the context of a Facebook or a Twitter. Um, and when I'm hanging around Stanford and CMU and Berkeley and other, other top universities, um, we really see some excellent work in optimization theory, kind of more generalization of what we've done with machine learning. Um, and, and I'll definitely, you know, I, I really love working in machine learning, and I've done it since grad school in the early mid-80s. Um, I've seen it evolve a lot, but arguably it's quite ad hoc. There's a lot of different algorithms and 
little nits and techniques. But some of the areas of optimization theory are really starting to generalize this now. And I think that we're going to see um, some pretty big breakthroughs coming out of academia moving into industry. Well, thank you for the podcast today, Paco. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.